Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, January 6th. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you all enjoyed your wonderful weekends. It was a big weekend in sports. Team Canada scored a big 4-3 win over Russia at the World Junior Hockey Championships to win the gold medal. Uh, Canada won just uh, two gold medals at the event in the 2010s, so the 20s are off to a roaring start here. It also marked the first time Canada won gold when playing overseas for the first time since 2008. So that was a, a bit of a drought broken there, and that year... The event was held in the Czech Republic, so maybe it's a bit of a Czech thing. Uh, of course, the uh, play of the game was that, uh, or the player of the game, I guess I should say, was that TSN camera that saved uh, what should have been a puck over the glass penalty and prevented a penalty to uh, Aiden Dudas. Russia would have had a five-on-three power play had the right call been made there, but uh, I think the camera saved the day. Canada avoids the penalty, kills off the one they already had, and uh, go on to win the game 4-3. to three. There was also some good local junior hockey action this weekend. Kamloops Blazers scored a 2-1 to overtime win on Friday night against Vancouver. Here's John Keane with the call there. Pass it off to Franklin, one-on-one with Cannon Cleaford. He'll wait for help instead. Franklin, middle of the ice, holds, 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 waits, now shoots, deflected, scores! So Kamloops escapes with an arrow win on Friday, despite out shooting the Giants 47-20, including 23-4 in the third period alone. But uh, Vancouver goalie David Tendak kept his team in it, only to see a weird fluky bouncer from Zane Franklin get past him in overtime. The Blazers then carried that momentum into Saturday night. Uh, the Victoria Royals had been on a bit of a, a recent climb up the standings, but the Blazers came out pretty quick and showed them who the top team in the BC division is, and they scored a big commanding 5-1 win Saturday night. So John Keane will join me at the end of today's show to help break down all of that weekend action and also uh, Friday it's a trade deadline in the WHL so maybe we'll get a sneak peek of what we can expect the Blazers to do here come the tail end of this week it was also a wild card weekend in the NFL I hope no one out there listened to me when it comes to who I thought would win because I picked uh, Seattle right and that was the only game I got correct uh, I thought my Bills could have uh, beaten Houston and you know what when you have a 16-0 win in the third quarter you probably should win and the guys with the most touchdown passes in NFL history both were upset at home I don't think many saw that coming Drew Breeze leads the NFL list for most touchdown passes all time. They lost to the six-seeded Minnesota Vikings in overtime. And then Tom Brady, number two on that list, uh, his New England uh, Patriots, the defending champs, lost to the six-seeded Tennessee Titans. So my Patriots Super Bowl pick is dead in the water, but I will say it will definitely be nice to see a, a couple of new teams in the dance for once. Watching history is great. Seeing a, a seventh Tom Brady Super Bowl win could be cool from a historical context, but uh, seeing a new team actually lift the Lombardi Trophy, I think, will be a little more interesting this time around. Uh, so that's a very, very brief recap in uh, sports this past weekend. We didn't even get into, like, NHL or NBA or all the other stuff that went on. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys got a new coach. So a lot of stuff happening here this past weekend, but we'll, uh, we'll stick to the hockey here when uh, John joins me at the tail end of the show. I do have other stuff on today's program as well. To kick off the back half, I'll be chatting with the Chief Science and KTE Officer with the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and just last week there was some news that we could be looking at a vaccine for dementia being ready for human trials within the next decade. So there is quite a bit to discuss when it comes to the subject of dementia, something that uh, more than 700,000 Canadians live with, and perhaps a disease that doesn't get discussed enough. So I'll be 
be joined by Dr. Saskia Sivananthan at around the 35-minute mark of this hour to talk more about that. And coming up next, it's my usual Monday morning chat with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. A couple of things to discuss here today. Uh, one issue that cropped up in the last few days was a case where a single mother in the Victoria area received a distracted driving ticket on New Year's Eve uh, because she touched her phone while it was mounted to the dashboard. The woman came to a stop at a red light and touched her phone to change a song that was playing through the car stereo. The phone was indeed mounted on her dashboard and was playing music through her Bluetooth. So. A police officer pulled her over and told her he was going to give her a $368 ticket and four demerit points on her license for scrolling on her phone. Now, this woman went on to say that the officer explained that if she'd simply been answering the phone, she'd have been allowed to press up to 10 buttons. Not sure how that works, but that was what she was told, or that's what she says she was told, and then relayed this information uh, you know, to, to those who are interested in the story. So this woman reached out to Kyla Lee not too long afterwards, and so I'll be getting the lowdown on exactly what the rules are when talking about having your phone mounted on the dash and what you can and cannot do while your car is in motion, or stopped at a red light for that matter, and then find out what the latest is when it comes to this specific situation. And uh, what is next for this woman, I guess, who says that she had a squeaky clean driving record prior to this $368 ticket. Uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of how this case is playing out and moving forward. And if uh, this is another one of those cases where a ticket was handed out because uh, of that gray area that exists within the distracted driving rules, and, um, you know, maybe it's something that, that shouldn't have been handed out in the first place or is just a matter of, uh, you know, figuring out exactly what the case is. I was talking with uh, Howie here before I jumped on the show, and, and uh, we were saying that, you know, it'd be nice if the rules were black and white for all involved, those handing out the tickets, those receiving the tickets, those who want to know, you know, do I have uh, uh, an issue with some of my behavior when I'm talking about how I'm operating my phone and my vehicle or using it at all? Um, there's just too much gray area sometimes, I think, when it comes to some of these cases, and it would be nice if there was just a right and a wrong, and uh, then we would all be able to, I think, maneuver around the rules a little bit better. So that's one issue Kyla and I will be discussing here coming up briefly. Uh, there was also a great case out of Michigan uh, on New Year's Eve as well. Four men, all aged 19 or 20, were charged with obstruction of justice, disorderly person, and issued civil infractions for minors in possession of alcohol as a result of drinking while operating, get this, a horse and buggy. Apparently, they were reported after people noticed these men throwing beer cans from their buggy onto the street. So uh, eventually, the cops came and, and pulled them over. And, and because they were all 19 or 20, of course, the drinking age in the U.S. is 21. So they got those uh, drinking underage tickets. So maybe that kind of helped their case when it comes to uh, what charges they were going to be receiving as a result of, uh, <laughs> of this action that they did. Uh, yeah, drinking and operating a horse and buggy. That's not something you read every day. So it uh, be interesting to see sort of what the, what the take is on that. It, it, maybe more serious charges could have been laid. I don't know. I'm going to be finding out a little bit more when it comes to those rules about, uh, you know, drinking and operating a vehicle that isn't a motorized vehicle. What are the rules? Are they different? How different are they? Sometimes we hear people say, you know, uh, you can get a, a drinking and driving ticket while on your bicycle. Is that the case? Um, you know, or is that just one of those myths that people say out there? So we'll, we'll be chatting more. Uh, with Kyla about those uh, those two specific stories, maybe a little bit more as well. So uh, stick around. It's going to be a good show, and I'll be joined by Acumen Law's Kyla Lee after the break. So please, stay tuned. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. 
Welcome back here. It is Monday. Hope you all had a great weekend. It has uh, felt for me like quite a while since I've had to work a full five-day work week, so this might be a, a difficult week for me to get through. But one person who I know never seems to take any time off and, and works around the clock is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee, and she joins me on the phone now. Kyla, how are you doing here today? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, I assume you were uh, working all weekend as per usual, right? As usual, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to keep busy somehow, so it's uh, it's good that you take the time to, to continue working, and I'm more appreciative that you take the time to come on here and talk with me every Monday. So uh, let's start with the weird story here out of uh, Gladwin County, Michigan. So I mentioned this before the break, and now uh, four kids, they got pulled over in a horse and buggy as they were throwing beer cans out the back on New Year's Eve. So they were called... They were called in by some uh, passers-by, and, and police came and charged these 19- and 20-year-olds with obstruction of justice, disorderly person, and issued civil infractions for minors in possession of alcohol. Uh, Kyla, I just want to ask, when you first saw this story, I guess, what, what was your initial thought? I mean, you must have gotten a bit of a chuckle here. I got a huge laugh out of this story. I mean, it's very rare to see people charged with with these types of offenses, especially, you know, sort of drinking offenses when they're uh, operating a horse and buggy and not, you know, an actual motor vehicle. Um, and I, I really have to wonder, you know, what details have not been released to the media? What was this obstruction that these young men engaged in um, that, that led to them getting that charge? I think there's a lot more here that we aren't even knowing about. Well, yeah, it'd be interesting to see to see their whole story, to see the incident itself, I'm sure would be, be a sight to see for sure. Uh, I'm curious, too, on your thoughts on sort of what exactly took place and the fact that they, you know, they weren't charged with the impaired operation of a vehicle or anything along those lines. Um, is, that, is that the right call? Like, how does it work? Uh, how, how do the rules differ when you're talking about operating a vehicle when, when comparing a, a motorized vehicle to a non-motorized vehicle? Are the rules significantly different? different, um, although you, it, it's not exclusively the case that you couldn't be charged with impaired operation in these circumstances. Essentially, it, it comes down to what the definition of, of a vehicle is or a conveyance, um, which can include uh, railway equipment, aircraft, boats. Um, there was even a case recently where somebody was convicted in Canada of impaired operation of a canoe. And essentially, the, the court looks at the question of whether or not a person has enough is exercising enough control over the thing that they're propelling that it poses a risk to the public. Even a motorized wheelchair has been sufficient in one case to found a conviction for impaired operation. So with those in mind, I'm just curious, what's the, the maybe the weirdest vehicle that you've seen in, in uh, maybe a case that you've handled? Have you had any sort of weird, wacky vehicles that you've uh, had to defend someone from? Um, I haven't had anything that weird. I mean, those those strange sort of half tricycle, half motorcycle, half car uh, contraptions is probably the strangest vehicle I've I've seen in a case I've defended. Um, but in Canadian law, the strangest ones I've seen have been a, a canoe and a wheelchair. Um, I was also curious too. I just wanted to kind of get some clarification here because I've heard people say this kind of stuff, and I'm really not sure just how true it is. But people sometimes seem to believe that you can get an impaired operation charge when when riding around on something like your bicycle if you were to bike to the bar and then wanted to bike home and you've had a few too many that you could potentially get a ticket there is is that the case i mean i've never really heard of it happening but but could it happen i guess it could based on what you said you could get punished under British Columbia's Motor Vehicle Act uh, for operating a bicycle uh, while uh, you are uh, impaired uh, by alcohol. Basically, the Motor Vehicle Act has a provision that makes cyclists 
subject to all the same laws that apply to motor vehicles. And in the Motor Vehicle Act, of course, there are provisions related to not operating while impaired and not operating well over the limit. It's theoretically possible. The likelihood is that it would never happen. Yeah, I mean, you would hope that someone taking the steps to, to not get behind a motorized vehicle would maybe be given the benefit of the doubt, but definitely can still be dangerous if you're uh, on the road and, and swerving around on your bike. It could uh, have some pretty dangerous consequences as well. Um, mm -hmm. So let's move on to this other case involving this woman here from Victoria. So uh, again, before the break, I kind of went over the story itself and, and talked about what happened. So just to quickly recap, a uh, woman in Victoria handed a $368 fine for choosing a new song while stopped at a light. Her phone was connected to the Bluetooth in her vehicle and mounted to her dashboard. Uh, so, Kyla, what, what is the situation here? I mean, uh, you were reached out to by this woman, it looked like, pretty quickly on, on Twitter. Um, and this is sort of a, uh, it seems to be a bit of a gray area when talking about what you can and can't do with a phone mounted in your vehicle. So maybe just first and foremost, what's, what's the latest here on this specific case? And, and you know, uh, what steps have been taken to sort of um, fight, fight this ticket at this point in time? At this point in time, the ticket's been filed in dispute. Um, we expect that the dispute's going to be successful, not because of any of the confusion in the law related to what you can and can't do with a mounted phone, but on the basis of the fact that this woman was ticketed under a provision that only applies to individuals who have a Class 7 license, so the L or the N. Um, so the ticket that she was given wouldn't even apply to her. She has a Class 5 license. She's been driving for 10 years. Um, the more difficult thing for her is is the fact that she did touch the phone to change a song and that is prohibited under the motor vehicle act touching the phone while it's mounted is only permitted if you are initiating accepting or ending a phone call otherwise you're not allowed to touch the phone so with that in mind i mean that's really hard i think for for uh, an officer maybe who is uh, you know seeing someone touch their phone how do they potentially know hey it looks like they changed the song how do i know that they're doing that and not making a phone call or something uh, something along those lines i mean this seems to be something that is kind of difficult to judge from afar and so i'm wondering if you believe these rules that are kind of pertaining to, to your phone being mounted on your dash, I mean, it feels really gray, and I, I would like it personally if it was more black and white, just to know what you can and can't do, because it seems silly that I could touch my phone for a phone call, but not touch it to change the song that's playing on, on, on my stereo. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's totally gray, um, and it's, it makes no sense. I mean, it's about as dangerous to tap your phone to shuffle to the next song on your shuffle feature as it is to tap your phone to say accept or end when somebody's calling you. Um, and so there's no there's no reason for this distinction in the law. Um, and while it may be the case that, of course, if you're, you know, your nose is in your phone and you're shuffling through your songs trying to find one specific song, you should be ticketed. But that's multiple touches. A single touch is a single touch. It doesn't matter what the purpose of for it is. And it is difficult for an officer to prove um, what you're doing when you're touching the phone or even make those observations. It appears that in this case, the officer was also uninformed about the law because according to this individual, he told her that she was allowed to touch the phone up to 10 times in order to take a call, which is not what the law says. Okay, so with that in mind, what is the law there? Is it just, uh, you know, is there a, a no limit to touching when it comes to making a phone call? Is that, because that's what this woman had said that the cop told her, right? Was that she could have touched it up to 10 times had she been making a phone call. And you said that's not really true. So can you just sort of uh, fill me in on the details on that specific part of this law? Or, or you know, is there yeah. is there specific details you can relay there? 
Yes, the Motor Vehicle Act uses very clear language on that point. It says that only one touch is permitted, so one tap. Um, and, and, of course, that legislation was drafted at a time where phones didn't have, you know, these gigantic glass screens that you can interact with. Um, Touchscreen phones weren't a thing when this legislation came into effect. And so the notion that you could tap the screen of your phone to do anything other than take a call wasn't even something that was in the legislature's con- contemplation. They were thinking about, you know, the early version of the iPhone and other phones, which has an answer and accept button as part of the phone itself. Right. Okay. That does make sense. Because really, when you think about the fact that you can't change the song that's playing through your music player on your phone, which only does take one tap, how is that any different than scrolling through the radio station on the pre-built-in stereo that already exists in your car, right? Exactly. And it's, in fact, in some circumstances, more dangerous to be flipping through the radio station on your car's controls or to be interacting with the giant electronic screens that many cars come with now. Um, That's a lot more dangerous and distracting than a single tap of your phone. And I think that it's time, if not for the lack of clarity in the law, at least for the way that the technology has changed since the law was drafted, to change the law to reflect the technology that people are interacting with on a day-to-day basis, to make that clear what's permissible and what's not. Well, people are smart. They're not flipping the radio anyway. They're just stu- staying tuned to Radio NL. That's the smart move, I think. Um, one more question here, Kyla, before I let you go. So there was a bit of a discrepancy when talking about this woman's license. So if she went at Class 7, then, um, you know, she wouldn't have been allowed to even have that one touch of the phone. But if you have a Class 5, then you can touch it once. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bizarre that, uh, you know, you would rules would change based on that? I feel like a distracted driver is a distracted driver. It shouldn't matter if you're a Class 5 or 7. I think it comes down to the level of experience. People who have less experience driving, who haven't been licensed for as long, are less likely to react appropriately when when dealing with a risk on the roadway and less likely to be able to be as focused on the task of driving while distractions are present. Um, and as you become more experienced as a driver, you become more comfortable and you become more capable of dealing with risks. In the same way that, you know, if you've ever gone on a vacation for a couple of weeks and you get back into your car and you start driving, you're like, whoa, I remember how to do this. It's no different with this. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, as always, to uh, to break down some interesting cases and some stuff that you're currently working on. Always appreciate taking the time, and I'm sure we'll do it again next week. Great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Coming up next, it is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. I'll be speaking with the Chief Science Officer with the Alzheimer's Society of Canada after this, so stay tuned. Opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thanks so much for tuning in today. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month and a recent story does indicate that a vaccine designed to prevent dementia could soon be set to enter human trials after successful tests on mice. I'm joined now on the phone by the Chief Science and KTE Officer for the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, Dr. Saskia Sivananthan. Doctor, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, so I guess first and foremost, uh, I mean, Alzheimer's Awareness Month uh, here in January and some good news coming out, it sounds like from a research standpoint. Um, I guess just, you know, with with the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, what is the thought right now in terms of the research being done to to try and prevent and end dementia? I mean, uh, a lot of work has been done. I guess, what, what are your thoughts on the progress that's been made here to date and, and sort of how, how are people coping with the disease at this point in time? 
Well, you're absolutely right. It is very timely news that we're talking about uh, Alzheimer's and, and dementia research more broadly because it's Alzheimer's Awareness Month. And um, January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month really for a particular reason. It's we want to be able to raise uh, the profile of dementia for people to understand um, what it means to live with dementia, that you can live and live well with it for 10, 20 years if you get the right supports and a diagnosis early. What is uh, very interesting about the study that we're talking about today is a reported vaccine uh, that's been tested in uh, a mouse model. And it's targeting uh, what are the two hallmarks um, of Alzheimer's disease. These are called plaques and tangles. Uh, So if you take a look at the brain of a person living with dementia, uh, plaques basically are, are almost like birthmark stains in the brain. They're made up of a certain protein called amyloid beta. And the tangles look like haystacks in the brain, and they're ma- made up of another protein called tau. Uh, and so this vaccine is targeting both of those hallmarks in combination, where else um, in any of the previous work, it, um, any of the studies tend to focus on one or the other. Uh, what I'd say is, is that the research is very promising, but of course we need to be cautious because it's only just been tested in a mouse model. And uh, often where the gap occurs is translating from a mouse model to human trials. Um, and just getting to phase one can be that stumbling block. Uh, but in terms of dementia research more broadly, uh, there has been quite a bit of uh, research that's been coming out both in the biomedical field, which is where where um, this vaccine uh, uh, research is originating, but also in uh, the prevention and risk reduction field. There's a lot we're learning now about things you can do uh, to reduce your risk of developing dementia and to being able to try and slow that cognitive decline even after you've um, been diagnosed with dementia. So quite a bit of promising work coming out. But Alzheimer's disease and dementia research is significantly underfunded. Yeah, so because it is Alzheimer's Month, I think it's important to maybe talk about the the funding that currently goes into to finding a cure for Alzheimer's or preventing dementia from occurring. Um, I guess you know you're you're obviously with the research um, side of things here in Canada. So when when you're talking about underfunding, I guess can you maybe quantify that in some way? Can you say uh, you know it is underfunded, which is a very broad statement, but how how can we go about proving that when we're saying it is underfunded research to prevent dementia? How, how much more do you think is needed in order to really go about finding a cure and being able to do the work needed to, to even in the case of this vaccine to make sure it is being tested properly uh well that's a great question uh, <laughs> thanks for asking me you're going straight for the numbers uh, <laughs> Let me start by saying that actually the Alzheimer's Society um, runs an Alzheimer's Society research program and uh, we have a research competition and the deadline just closed for it. Uh, So we're actually quite excited because we've been funding uh, research in dementia and Alzheimer's for almost 30 years um, and we're dependent on funding that comes in from um, our donors to be able to keep this competition running annually. Uh, And we've really focused in on what is innovative research. So we hear quite a bit about about um, uh, different forms of research, whether it's biomedical, quality of life, etc. But we haven't had a breakthrough in dementia research for over 15 years in terms of a therapeutic. The last therapeutic that came out was 15 years ago. So we really um, were due for uh, something that is helping to propel the field forward. But because of the underfunding, and I'll get to the numbers in a minute, um, it's difficult for researchers to be able to 
push forward when they don't have enough to build the first for the infrastructure and then to be able to move more of those therapeutics into a phase one clinical trial. Because, of course, um, the early research, which generates those molecules and those hypotheses, are what eventually translate over into phase one and then phase two and phase three of, of clinical trials. So I'll give you a sense. Um, actually, just in December last month, um, the U.S. Uh, increased its funding uh, for Alzheimer's uh, research, uh, which pegged it uh, at, I believe, $2.8 billion in dementia research. Uh, in Canada, we spend ballpark about $41 million. Um, now, when you think about... Uh, our population size, certainly we are smaller than the U.S., but we are still significantly lower in our funding compared to the U.S. just in the Alzheimer's uh, space alone. But when you compare it to other diseases uh, like cancer or cardiovascular disease, again, Alzheimer's research is sometimes something like 23 times underfunded uh, compared to for example HIV or AIDS. So when you're talking about those numbers saying it is underfunded um, I'm just curious here when we're talking about I guess the the impact that it has on individuals because uh, you know you mm-hmm. talk about cancer research and you know that seems to be the one that most people think about when they're when they're looking at donations you also mentioned uh, cardiovascular and and, and uh, heart and stroke research as well so all of that uh, you know seems to be sort of the top of people's hit list when they're talking about where would I put my money for donations, um, but you know, maybe dementia isn't isn't something that is is higher on the list. It's not something that people necessarily think of right away as somewhere they might want to put their money. Uh, but how how I guess should it be? I mean, when we're talking about how prevalent it can be uh, for people in the country to live with, or, or or someone that you know who lives with it. I mean, I believe the numbers are some seven hundred forty seven thousand Canadians are living with Alzheimer's or or some other form of dementia. I mean, this is this is a, a large portion of the population, and, and maybe it should be something that people think of a little more frequently. You're absolutely right. So over half a million Canadians are currently living with dementia, and that number is expected to double in just over 10 years. So we're not talking about a small number. And we know, of course, that age is the highest risk factor for dementia. The older our population is getting, the more likely the number of people living with dementia will increase. Um, And we actually recently uh, did a survey where we asked Canadians, uh, you know, do you think you are affected by dementia? Uh, And what we found was basically almost everyone either knows someone who's living with dementia or has been touched by dementia in some way, shape, or form because they're caring for someone living dementia, they have a grandparent um, or a grand-aunt or uncle who's lived with Alzheimer's or dementia. So it will touch every one of us. And Alzheimer's really is um, what we call a promiscuous disease. It's not just healthcare. It impacts so many other areas of our lives. It impacts transportation. It impacts housing. It impacts our ability to do uh, a lot of the uh, things we might be passionate about or have done in our daily life. And then, of course, it impacts the carers, exactly as you just mentioned. People who are helping to take care of those who are living with dementia. Um, uh, There's a lot of research that's showing that women are more impacted by dementia than men, not just 
in terms of developing dementia, but also women are often more likely the ones to be the caregivers for a person living with dementia, which means they're quitting their jobs, they're cutting back on their hours at work, um, and we have a bit of a sandwich generation where we have women who have younger children that they're taking care of, and they have aging parents who might be developing dementia that they're also taking care of. So it touches us in many, many ways, and it should very much be on the um, highest um, in terms of thinking about impact and, and who it's impacting. One of the things that I found interesting in some of the stats that were, were sent to me when looking at this uh, subject was uh, you know, saying that dementia is not a natural part of aging. I think that might be a misconception that a lot of people think, um, you know, as the older I get, uh, the bigger my risk is for, for having some form of dementia, and that might just be something I'm predisposed to, and it is a, maybe a natural part of the aging process, but that, that isn't the case. I mean, can you can you kind of explain how, um, you know, maybe maybe people are, are misinterpreting how dementia does uh, come come of, come on and affect people as, as they get older? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for raising that point. So, uh, when I said that people that age is one of the highest risk factors. What um, what that would mean is, is that, yes, as you get older, you are at higher risk of developing dementia. But that does not necessarily mean that dementia is normal. It's kind of like saying if you smoke, you're at higher risk of developing lung cancer. That does not mean that cancer is normal or natural. Okay. Um, and so with, with dementia, um, if you think about forgetfulness, uh, it, it is natural to forget. I mean, sometimes I, not sometimes, I almost always never remember where I parked my car in a large parking lot. But dementia is different. It, it is impacting your memory for doing things that you've always done, what we call activities of daily living. Um, there's increased confusion, personality changes, and you lose your ability to do those everyday tasks. This is not normal aging. Uh, and, and it's important to recognize those signs um, because it also impacts language and your ability to, to use certain words and, and to be able to communicate how you're feeling. Uh, so this is also why as part of Awareness Month, we're saying if you are concerned, it's better that you go see a doctor and, uh, and get a diagnosis because a, you might not even have dementia. It can sometimes mimic other issues. Depression, for example, can mimic some of the signs of dementia. So you need to know what you're dealing with. And once you know what you're dealing with, you're able to get the supports early to be able to support you to, to live with the disease. But it is absolutely not a normal part of aging and shouldn't be considered as such. So with that in mind, is there anything that people can do to maybe reduce the risk of of, of um, you know contracting uh, some form of dementia like is there any steps that we should be taking just in our everyday lives that would uh, allow us to you know be at less risk of, of having and contracting some form of dementia what, what can people do to to stay on top of it I suppose uh, so this is where the research has actually been really exciting because we've been seeing quite a bit more coming out in the past, uh, I'd say, five years or so around what can you do to reduce your risk of dementia. A lot of it are things that I think we've always known, but we tended to connect it to our heart and not to our brain health. Uh, so, for example, uh, we've talked about a healthy diet, but what
what kind of a healthy diet? Well, the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diets are ones that are often spoken about. It's basically reducing your intake of processed foods, sugary drinks, um, and, and really increasing your intake of fish, grains, vegetables. Um, so diet has been shown to be very strongly linked to reducing your risk of dementia. Um, exercise as well has been shown to have a huge impact in reducing risk of dementia and as well as helping um, manage the cognitive decline after you are diagnosed. So exercise just in general and it's that time of year you're making your new year's resolution and trying to stick to it well exercise is absolutely one that you should be investing in but there are other risk factors that are specifically linked to dementia that aren't necessarily just about your heart um so for example uh um, cognitive stimulation or, or training. So this is the idea of keeping active and, and stimulating your brain. It's a muscle just like any other and you've got to be continuing to stimulate it in new and different ways. So that might mean taking up a new language. Uh, it might be learning a new instrument. It might be trying out different types of puzzles but they need to be different from what you've always done because they're creating new neural pathways in your brain and it's building what we call cognitive reserve. Uh, and this is what really helps to reduce your risk of dementia later on. Well, doctor, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me here today. I really appreciate it. And, and progress on this vaccine is something I'll be paying attention to here throughout the next number of years and just research on dementia in general. So thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Saskia Sivananthan, the Chief Science and KTE Officer with Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Coming up after the break, Blazers went 2-0 over the weekend. I'll be speaking with John Keane next. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Monday. The Kamloops Blazers scored a pair of wins over the weekend, beating the Vancouver Vancouver Giants 2-1 to one in overtime and then crushing Victoria 5-1 to one on Saturday. Here to help break it down is the voice of your Kamloops Blazers, Mr. John Keane. John, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Good to, have, good, uh, good to be back on with you. And, uh busy week ahead here for uh, all the 22 WHL teams. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that in a second, but it was just in general sort of a, a pretty big weekend for sports here. We had some NFL playoff action, uh, World Junior Championships, bunch of NHL, NBA games, and of course the Blazers going 2-0. and uh, I think the answer probably is pretty obvious here, but what was your sports highlight of the weekend? Well, uh, we have to give another shout out as well to, to Kibbit as well. That's a massive tournament every year, so kudos to the organizers there at Kibbit uh, who put that on every year. There was a Camelot's team in the Tier 2 final the Blazers uh, they lost in double overtime so yeah you mentioned all the other things going on of course we were carrying world juniors uh, you know what uh, definitely uh, as much as it's nice to beat a couple division rivals uh, on the Blazers side no doubt that gold medal game and that comeback uh, in the third period uh, was big and I'm, I'll tell you a little story here I uh, you know me uh, a, a little bit Jeff but but I'm a, I'm a superstitious guy uh, and I was flipping between the football game and, uh, and the hockey game last night, uh, yesterday morning. And every time I was watching the Canada game, Russia scored. And every time uh, I was watching the football game, Canada scored. So I'm like, okay, well, uh, with Canada down 3-2 to two in the third, I was like, I'm out. I'm done watching the, the Canada game. And, um, you know, lo and behold, they scored the next, what, three goals, two goals to, to win it. And, 
and uh, Canada wins gold. So that, I, I didn't actually watch the third period uh, of that game until uh, last night when I watched the replay. Well, everyone's been saying that uh, TSN camera at Centre Ice was the kind of MVP of the game, <laughs> but maybe it was uh, John Keane who was the MVP for not paying attention, so we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, Canada, you can send me that gold medal shirt. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, take a look back here at the Blazers. Uh, so a couple of games. Let's start with Friday night. Kamloops pretty much all over Vancouver the entire game. Uh, they do get one pass David Tedneck for a one nothing lead, which they pretty much have for most of the game before uh, Tristan Nielsen scores with 27 seconds left in the game to send it to overtime where St. Franklin puts a, a bit of a fluky one in for the win. So just how would you describe this one? I mean, Blazers domination that almost saw them come out on the short side of things despite, uh, you know, really having control the whole time? Yeah, uh, definitely for sure. And it's almost like it's vividly shocking to see that goal go in, you know, with 26 seconds or whatever it was when, when the other team hadn't scored all game. And then they kind of, you know, get it to an angle. And Tristan Nielsen uh, had some chances during the game. And uh, sure enough, he finds that tying goal. And it's like, oh, man, like, you know, this this great effort might only result in one point. But uh, the Blazers got that bounce in overtime. St. Franklin, a uh, bit of an unorthodox play just to throw the puck at the net in overtime. You don't see that three-on-three. Three. It's about puck possession. But he just kind of lifted his shot toward the net. Uh, the defender there tried to block it with his glove, and he actually well, as you saw, deflected it by his own goaltender, and you know, that was the big reason uh, for the two points. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to get those ugly ones, especially when you're getting 47 <laughs> shots on game and you can only get one. It, it takes an ugly one to win. Um, sure. And then, and then we'll move ahead to Saturday. I mean, Victoria seemed to really be making a move up the standings recently. We're coming into the weekend with some momentum. Uh, they had one four in a row heading into Saturday night, but then Kamloops seemed to just really take control of this game, especially come the second period, and then they, they really never looked back. I mean, uh, can you just break this one down a little bit for me here? Just uh, what happened to Victoria? It didn't really seem like a team that was on maybe the momentum that I thought they might be heading in. Well, you know, December 30th, we saw these teams match up, and I, I don't I don't think the Blazers will say they were surprised uh, by Victoria's, um, you know, tight checking and work ethic. But I think you haven't seen a team since uh, October. Uh, and, you know, they've obviously found ways to, to win. And, and, and their style is to play hard and, and play physical and, and play tight checking. And it's got them results. Uh, so when you have a game like that, I think the Blazers are like, okay, well, we have to maybe change the way we approach the game and maybe try some different things. And, you know, I think we saw not only that, but the fact that Blazers inserted three players in their lineup who were not in that December 30th loss. Uh, you throw back in Martin Lang, you throw in Yaki Barragato in the mix, and Kyrell Sopatik, and you also throw your starting goaltender back in, and Dylan Durant, and I think it's a different story. Uh, and, you know, I think we saw that play out, uh, uh, you know, on on Saturday night. That, that was a big win, kind of, to stop Victoria's momentum. Uh, they, they are a good team, though, and they feel with their roster here, with eight 19-year-olds, that uh, this could be the time for them here, and, and the uh, they also uh, they changed their goaltender up in that game. They, they did go with their number one back on the 30th, Shane Farkas. They uh, had Brock Gold in goal. Maybe not his best game, uh, but you know, definitely these two teams are uh, probably on another collision course in the playoffs here at some point. Now, John, really running out of time here, unfortunately, but I did want to look ahead briefly to the trade deadline coming up on Friday. What are you expecting the Rockets to do? Are you expecting them to do much? I mean, they added Ryan Hughes. They've added Max Martin. Uh, anything left for this team to do uh, come Friday? 
Yeah, I think the Blazers uh, will be uh, will be uh, adding a defenseman here at some point. Uh, whether it's a you know an impact guy or a depth guy will will probably remain to be what the prices will be. Uh, I definitely, I think a, a defenseman is on their on their radar here for sure. And, and you said the Rockets. Uh, the Rockets, I, I would expect, still will uh, will add you know a player or two leading up to Friday, and we'll see what lineup they look like because these two teams will go head to head on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, that's probably my bad. I was looking ahead to the Friday night, Saturday night uh, home and home mini series, so they will be taking yeah. on the Rockets uh, here in Kamloops on Friday and then in Kelowna on Saturday, so I apologize for saying the wrong name. Sometimes my oh, brain yeah. gets mixed up, but thanks so much for doing this, John. I appreciate it, and we'll look ahead to Friday, and hopefully we'll uh, have some, some traded action to break down uh, come next week as well. Yeah, you bet. Take solace in the fact that uh, Gord Miller on TSN also called Nolan Foot from Kamloops here, so it happens all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not unique, that's for sure. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. Uh, all right, you bet. All right, that was uh, John Keane, the voice of your Kamloops Blazers. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9. Drive safe out there, folks.